0: the systems uh, that serve those people so this has been uh, my path for a long time yeah. um, so what I'm curious about is how service shows up in your life what, what way does would you describe the way in which you are of service in the world and I can imagine lots of different ways. Some of us are doing it as part of our professional work. Some of us do it as a volunteer. Some of us are serving in our families, or communities, in other ways. So I'd like to just get a sense of um, the many expressions of service that might be existing here in the room. So rather than my rattling on a lot longer, I'd actually like to get a sense from you. What ways are you of service in the world now? And maybe you could, people could just Say them out loud just in a brief way. Um, how do you serve in the world? Anybody want to say? Hmm. This is not a hard question. Yes. I work with kids with autism and also provide a lot of support for some the Uh huh. Great. So you work with kids with autism? And also support people in your community. Wonderful. Other people. What else do you do? How else do you be in service? Anybody want to say? I know this is the really hard part. If you thought I was going to talk for the whole evening, you're wrong. <laughs> yes, go ahead. No, teach you teach English as a second language. Beautiful. literacy classes. Great. Somebody else. Let's hear some more. Yes, please. I'm a volunteer at the Hospital. You're a volunteer at the Honda. Wonderful. Great. Somebody else? Yes? For are you offer massage to people who are dying. How about the p- teachers? Do you offer massage to teachers? <laughs> oh, good. I'd like to know about that. That's great. Okay. Somebody else? What else do you serve? Yes, please. You're a hospice nurse at Kaiser here in the city? No,
1: over
0: in East Bay. In East Bay. Okay, great. Someone else? Yes? Beautiful. He's a nanny. He buys burritos for homeless people and visits your granny as often as you can. Ooh. I'll let them take care of that. Somebody else. Yes, please.
1: I volunteer as a chaplain one uh, right that week at Laguna Honda.
0: You do? You volunteer as a chaplain there. On all the wards?
1: On 07.
0: On 07. Okay, great. I know it well. Yes. Oh, you are also a chaplain. Yes. Wonderful. That's great. Also a chaplain of Libyananda. Somebody else? What is, I'm also interested in the very everyday ways that we serve, like offering burritos to homeless people. <laughs> what else? Some of it, for some of us, it, it's our identity, really, the way we serve. Yes?
1: I uh, take my grandson one afternoon a week uh-huh. and shop for
0: a friend who has a disability. Beautiful. So she takes her grandson one afternoon a week. And shops for a person with, dis- with a disability. Beautiful, yes.
1: I work at Martin DePore's soup kitchen. Oh in
0: yeah. Seven, oh, beautiful. I know it well. On Thursday. Yes, Martin DePore's soup kitchen. She works in serving soup and all sorts of things. Beautiful, yeah. I, I for me actually, as I as I'm hearing people say this, I feel a kind of delight coming over me. I like that. This is in our lives. Yeah, beautiful. Anyone else? What else do you serve?
1: I work in uh, neurosurgery, uh, uh-huh. uh, helping the surgeons keep from hurting people. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, I teach that also. And I also support my wife, who's a therapist, who works primarily with women with breast cancer. Beautiful. So she needs someone to talk to.
0: Yes, that's very good. That's a really important piece, listening, isn't it? That's the way we serve, isn't it? Good. Yes, please. These are wonderful ways to serve. I, I, I appreciated that both of you mentioned listening as a way of serving. Actually, beautiful. Anything else? I
1: yeah. Work, sorry. I work for Goldman Institute on Aging. Oh, you do. Providing uh, service for the elderly to help them live independently.
0: Beautiful. As well as beautiful. Working at the Goldman Center. They do good, great work there. Yeah. Someone else wanted to say something. Yeah. Beautiful. These are great things. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed yet, but I noticed that somebody has been left out. And no one has described service to ourselves. It's funny, isn't it? We think about service always as the other guy, the other person, or someone else. How do you serve yourself? Anybody want to say? Please. By,
1: by having a meditation practice.
0: Beautiful. That's a very good service to the oneself. Having a meditation practice twice a day. Anyone else? How do you serve yourself? Yes. We come. She says she comes here. Yes, good. Do you want to say something? Uh huh. Just on Friday nights? Uh, every Friday night, though, without fail. Great. A nice warm bath. Yes. Did you want to say something?
1: well just scratching my oh, no. <laughs> I think um, my, my volunteer efforts are uh, a big project of trying to simplify, declutter my life and surroundings. Um, and uh, it really does take all of my um, uh, energies and, and thoughts to recently.
0: Beautiful. Simplifying. Voluntary simplicity. It's another kind of volunteering, isn't it? Beautiful. Yes? I would completely... Well, I, I was almost in agreement with you until you said that last phrase. But I believe you. It's not that I... Yes. So we do serve ourselves through serving others. Yes. Yes. I, I, the, the, my only hesitation was there that... More so. More so. Yeah. It's that equation I want us to actually look at this evening. So this is beautiful. We talk about serving self, serving others, serving the community at large, the world at large, really. Yeah. Beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. That's great. So we practice, we take care of ourselves so that we might serve others and also our service to others can be a way of nurturing ourselves. Beautiful. That's a really good way to think about it. I looked up service, you know. It's always a good way to start when you're thinking about a class. What's it actually mean, you know? So these are some things. Work, Work done for others. This is how we think about it anyway. Work done for others. These are associated words with service. Work done for others armed services, a department in a hospital, a facility providing the public with something of use, serving food, a set of dishes or utensils, copulation with a female animal. That was a big one.
1: <laughs>
0: serving a writ or a summons, a duty, an application, servitude. Then I just started thinking about this and I thought, service a debt, Service guarantee, these are associations I have with this word. Service charge, a service person, a service dog. Service station, serviette, service entrance, service elevator. How many of you took that service elevator? Silver tea service, a file server, you know about those. (laughs) Serve a mass, catering services. Butler services, or men and women in the service. Service road, there's even a service tree, did you know that? Computer service, superior service, diplomatic service, serve a tennis ball. And my uh, favorite, actually, uh, service as a spiritual path, actually, that's how I think of service. Service as a spiritual path, so it's service with a big S. Yeah. I suggested uh, uh, those of you who read the materials before we got here that we to encourage you to take a look at um, Ram Dass and Paul Gorman's book, How Can I Help? It's a terrific book, and I suggested it because I really actually think it's a kind of watershed work, and um, uh, it's incredibly ethically important to those of us who are involved in uh, the, the territory of service. Um, it asks all those questions. like um, should I become involved or not and if so how deeply and um, how much of the human suffering in the world can I let in and what do I do to block its entrance Um, what are my favorite strategies for keeping suffering at arm's length? Is it pity? Is it my sense of um, do I abstract suffering? Do I know it? You know, I know it, so I don't have to deal with it. Um, and also in this book, uh, in the book, he talks about something, he actually talks about mindfulness practice as a kind of, well, I call it a lubrication for service. Yeah? That we need mindfulness practice in order to do, um, in order to be grounded in the way in which we um, act in service. So, um, one of the things that that book does, um, I think, is uh, set out service as a kind of curriculum, service as uh, a paradox of. Um, uh, unanswerable questions actually unanswerable questions and so I thought it would be useful for us to read it a little bit I don't know how much I'll be referring to it in the class but I just think it's a terrific book on service and whenever I'm working with people I put it on the must read list so if you haven't had a chance to read it yet I'd like to suggest you get it and, uh, and, and take a good look at it it really looks at um, many of the dimensions of service that we're going to be talking about Now, in order to be of service in the world, real service, true service, um, it seems to me that there are four characteristics that uh, we need to consider, and I thought we might use these as the kind of foundations for our class, our series of classes. And the first of those is to be clear about our intention in service, Uh, the intention which precedes all action, and that's partly what we're going to talk about tonight. But then the second would be, regardless of the service that we do, a willingness to be um, compassionately present for suffering. A willingness to be compassionately present for suffering. And the third uh, third characteristic would be the willingness to release ourselves and others from the limitation, the tyranny of roles. Yeah? And the fourth, the fourth is a little more difficult. The fourth is to have an abiding confidence that we are more than the separate self we've taken ourselves to be. And so these kind of four characteristics or qualities I thought might form the basis for our discussions over these next few weeks. And we'll just take one a week and really try and dive into it and see what we can understand together. So... um, this evening, I thought I, I would like to begin with um, kind of asking you a question actually and I'm just I'll, the question is very simple um, what is service in your mind? what is service in your mind? and even as I ask that question see what's bubbling up what's emerging in your heart and your body and your mind as well Um, And I'd be really curious to just hear from you, just as we did a moment ago, maybe a phrase or a sentence that describes or words that you associate with the experience of service. So, um, you know, they might include things like um, altruism or empathy, empathy, for example. But I'm really curious to develop and understand here in the group what are some of the qualities or f- or things that you associate to the, with the question? What is service? Yeah, so let's talk. Yeah, yeah. Being of, help. being of help, simply being of help. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. Please. Providing a benefit to a person who's in need. Okay. Right. Yes. Beautiful. So that's, in, that's another thing to include, that what happens for us in the act of service, our willingness to be vulnerable. Uh, beautiful, yes. Let's keep going. Yes. Devotion. Devotion. That's a really wonderful word. Say more about that, if you would. So, I guess for me, it's kind of devotion to, you could see it as a higher power, a higher potential. Yes. Yes, beautiful. And that that's an important element for you in service. Yeah. So we have the word seva in, in in the Hindu tradition, actually, which are, or which is really service as a spiritual path, really beautiful. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Friendship. Ah, that's a really good one. What do you mean? Uh huh. Beautiful. So, something about what friendship evokes for you partly is a uh, relationship of equality. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Boy, that's really important. That's great. Thank you for including that. Yeah. Uh, it
1: comes to me as inspiration.
0: Inspiration? How, how does it come to you? Well,
1: I'm not sure exactly, but I know that I've had over my life opportunities to be Uh-huh. And there's always like a deep upflowing of feeling and inspiration going for
0: it, huh. much going on up here. Uh-huh. So it feels more like a response of the body or of the heart, really, more than a thought about it. Uh-huh. Even though you said inspiration, we normally think of that as an experience of the mind, but actually, you're speaking about it quite differently. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, Anne. Uh,
1: unconditional
0: love. Ah, what makes you think, say that?
1: Because no, because no matter how, I mean, if you were truly doing this, No matter how bad things get, and no matter how um, difficult you pursue it, because you're, you're just so open to that, because you love that, uh-huh. and a certain kind of ten- tenacious quality. uh-huh
0: stick to itness in some way. Uh-huh. <coughs> so this becomes the ground for your service in this case, or maybe with Michael. This. Well, it's one, of, one, one aspect of it, though, that, that you can return to it. It's what you call unconditional love. or mm-hmm. yeah, I call well, it an.
1: No un- matter how, when a person is suffering and, <coughs> and a lot of pain, yeah. they can be very. You know, no matter what is said to you or what is done to you, you still
0: love it. Yeah, beautiful. Lately, I've been talking about unconditional love as undying love. It feels real to me. I mean I do have conditions sometimes in my love, but with someone I love like with you and Michael. but I um, the love doesn't die. It's just really steady yeah even if sometimes it shows itself through the conditions of you know through the sets of conditions of my personality, there's the love anyway. yeah, beautiful. yeah, please yes. Go ahead. Both of you are going to get a chance, so it doesn't matter. Non-judgmental. That's a quality aspect of, ser- of true service. Mm-hmm. True service, yes. Beautiful. Non-judgment, yes. I think an aspect of my more intellectual service is making a relationship with all of their conscious and nervous. Ah. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I think of um, ritual, actually, as a way in which service, a uh, form in which service takes shape. And one of the things I think about ritual is that it's making explicit a truth which is already there, in a way. And in a sense, that's what you're suggesting in the relationship. You're, you're attending to something that's true, that's already there. Yeah. And then in your relationship with the other person. Beautiful. Yeah.
1: Beginning of service and feel that there's always a little really distance in there. Once they're held back from the service, the separation you just kind of goes away and
0: see the oneness and everybody's in the house. Ah, now we're getting still deeper. So you're pointing to something else, some kind of oneness or unity, mm-hmm. we might say, that, that you maybe don't see initially but evolves in the process of service. We might start out as separate people, but in the course or the act of service, something emerges. What contributes to that, would you say? What happens?
1: I think you see the suffering is not sort of different from one suffering and the next
0: suffering. Uh-huh. Well, that's an important piece. That's a really important piece. Because for me, that implies that I'm part of the equation. In other words, that I'm willing to see my own suffering... And then I see the suffering of the other. And then I understand, oh, this is the same suffering. Something like that. Beautiful. Please. suffering also, not giving Uh-huh. Beautiful. So let's include these parts, too, the parts that are difficult or the challenges that are in, uh, implicit in the experience of service. So you're pointing to something about, how do I care for myself when I'm serving for others? Um, when do I need certain kinds of boundaries, for example? Or when do, how can I respect my own limitations? Yeah? And when I, go, when I disrespect them, uh, can, am, I still, am I really still being of service? Yeah. That's great. Yeah, please. Two things come to mind. One is just continually opening the heart and uh barriers continually
1: to come down to others and also just making
0: an offering. Making an offering, that's a really nice way to say it. How do you mean? So, you started by saying, uh, opening my heart. How do you do that? <laughs> Actually,
1: all all the meditation practice. Feels
0: like some level about. Your me- so, your meditation practice is a vehicle for doing that, or a me- way. I mean, I mean,
1: likewise, the service also, I think they work together. Mm-hmm. So I think the meditation practice was mm-hmm. really beneficial.
0: that bad. Yeah. So we often talk about opening the heart, and I, you know, and I, I think we generally understand what this means. But you pointed to another aspect of it, which is important, which is that it's actually the dissolving of the obscurations, the dissolving of, we could say, the armoring around the heart, so that the heart's natural compassion and love and joy and equanimity can come forward. Yeah, beautiful. You, you wanted to say something in the back. Um, Oh, this sounds like Krishna and Arjuna.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, serving but without being attached to the results. How do you do that? I think by remaining present and not having expectations, it opens the possibilities of everything. Yeah, beautiful. So there's a way that we kind of we bring ourselves to the experience with our, you know, clear intention and uh, wholesome desire to be of service. But there's a way in which we're not using that to drive an agenda, you know, to push for a particular outcome in some way. Beautiful. And the way in which you sounds like you monitor that, uh, I'm going to use that word, is by staying present. And what do you mean by that? Yeah. And it ends up not the picture perfect hallmark bar. Uh-huh. You know, I can suddenly shut down and make myself um inaccessible to women or experiencing what really happened and what good actually could have come from. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Yeah, 'cause we get the mind becomes contracted, the heart gets contracted and we actually can't see. We we literally can't we blind ourselves to possibilities that we you know, um yeah, we can no longer see possibilities that exist. We've narrowed the scope of our vision. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm loving this discussion. Who else wanted to say something? Yeah.
1: It, it, to me, it seems like a lot of it is it's really and
0: asking, Huh. How can I uh-huh. and I really for that sounds like a good name for a book. Right, beautiful. Yeah, that's. Um, I'm so glad you brought this up because, well, it's one of the things I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about this tonight, but it's one of the great confusions between helping and serving. And uh, I'll, I'll address this later. But, um, you know, one is really driving a particular need and is arriving oftentimes out of our expertise as opposed to trying to serve what's emerging in the given situation. Um, and the latter uses everything. But the first kind of what we were suggesting a moment ago, it becomes very narrow. It's a very, very narrow track. We, we stop being a conduit, as somebody mentioned earlier, for all that's uh, here to support the act of service and get fixated on a particular outcome or methodology. They're great.
1: What yeah. came up for me was that silly Nike slogan, Just Do It. Uh-huh. I think of the pile of dishes and pots and pans after a dinner party. Uh-huh. Like, oh God, i got to do all these dishes. Uh-huh. It's a servant's job, after all. Right? Oh, yeah. And we are realized, hey, if I just do them, the warm water feels good. Yeah. the satisfaction of turning this pile of mess into a nice, clean stack of dishes. And the next thing you know, they're done and you're done. Like,
0: oh. Yeah, good. It's a servant's job. That's really good. My father was a chauffeur. And so we were the help. We were the help. I didn't mind being the help at all. Was kind of good. Uh, we were much happier than the people we were helping.
1: <laughs>
0: Someone else in the back wanted to say something, yes? Uh,
1: what's coming up for me is trust. Ah. And then both trusting the call to service, trusting what you offering as
0: service. Uh huh. Yes. Thank you. That's beautiful. So you you've mentioned a couple of things that I want to just if I could just highlight them. One is trust. Actually, what what are you trusting in? Um, Go ahead. You know.
1: So sort of Trusting in, in love, in oneness, in, love, in uh-huh. that spirit of offering. Uh huh.
0: Yeah say even in the guidance of our own nature you know, and trusting in the unfolding as someone said earlier the unfolding of the situation that the situation itself will show us what to do but you used another word that I, I wanted to highlight um, and that's calling you said calling that's a big word it's one of the th- things subjects I was hoping we might get to tonight actually so uh, let's just bracket that and remember calling by the way, I might remember I might ask you about that a little bit later if that's okay. Yeah, good. Yeah. What else? I think that um confidence in myself. There
1: have been a lot of situations where um my help was not asked for. Um I saw that I had something an offer.
0: Confidence in past experience, that's part of it, our expertise. Those things alone won't be enough, but they are part of the equation. So there's another piece, and I think maybe it was you mentioned it earlier about, I wanted to make sure we include, which is mutuality. I mean, for me, this is really important. I mean, when I used to interview volunteers at Zen Hospice years ago, one of the first questions I would ask them is, how does it serve you to do this work? And they would always be confused by the question, like, "Wait a minute, I, I'm coming here to do service. You know, what, what kind of question is that to ask me?" You know, but it's the question I would always ask: How does it serve you to do this work? And um, because I was convinced that unless we could identify how we are being served in the situation, then and, and what our needs were, even to be served in the situation, um, if we weren't attending to that we would unconsciously project that need onto the people in which we were serving. And we would start to look to them to be the provider of our goodies, as someone was mentioning earlier. So, being really clear about our needs in service is essential to me. And, um, and is a respectful position in the act of service. Yeah. Um, well, these are beautiful responses. Uh, I'm really enjoying hearing them and I want to a little bit later if we have time weave them back into kind of exercise I have in mind for us but um, one of the things that's becoming sort of clear to me as I'm listening to you is that service isn't just a thing we do I actually in, uh, I said earlier when speaking about my life that it's been a companion of mine for a good many years I would say I might even say it differently I would just say service is a way of life for me, It's just a way of life, it's just a way to view life and to be in life. Service is a way of life for me. So I thought what I would do is just um, talk now for a little bit about some basic ideas around this and just to sort of seed, the, seed our discussion a bit more along with what we've just discovered. And then um, we'll, we'll come back to some more discussion. Uh, Uh, Years ago I discovered a quote that has stayed with me for many, many years and I love very much. And it's by the great uh, Indian uh, poet and novelist writer Tagore. And um, he said very beautifully, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I woke and found that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy.
1: It's
0: a beautiful (laughs) teaching. So how many of you are parents in the room? Oh, okay. You, not just you, but you will especially know, I raised four kids, so I know this, that it's like that. You know, you, you, kids who went to bed finally at night and you lay down on your pillow and you're exhausted and you think, oh, God, oh, boy, I'm just going to dream. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. And then you wake up in the morning and you realize, oh, life is service, you know. There's sandwiches to be made and kids to get off to school and life is service. You know? <coughs> And then, you know, they're going off down the sidewalk or something, and they wave back at you or smile or something, and you go, oh, service is joy, actually. So for me, this has been a really great um, kind of guide in my life, these three lines. I slept and dreamt, life is joy. It is. I woke and found that life is service. It is. I acted and behold, service is joy. So, um, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think it's really essential when speaking about service to agree upon, I'll say, uh, a very basic premise, and that is that uh, there is no real service happening unless both people are being served. If 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 either of you are left out of the equation, no real service happening. Now, there is a deeper dimension of service than that, And it's one of the things that we're going to address in the last evening. That's when both you and the other fall away completely. But in in the relative act of service, no true service unless both people are being served. You know, at Zen Center, um, San Francisco Zen Center, there's a well-known, there's a ceremony when an abbot is installed. It's a big deal. You know, it's called the Mountain Seat Ceremony. And they, they build this big high platform with these stairs and the, Abbot-to-be has to climb up the stairs, symbolically climbing the mountain, you know, and he or she sits at the top of this uh, very high platform. And then students or uh, colleagues come forward to ask them questions, in effect, to question them, to determine whether or not they have the wisdom and compassion to lead the community. That's really the symbology of the whole, this big deal ceremony. So many years ago, when... um, Mel Weitzman, actually, was being installed as the co abbot of, co-abbot of Zen Center. Uh, one of the students came up to him and said, tested him and said, tell me, what does the Dharma, what does meditation practice, what does Buddhist practice have to teach me about service? About particularly, you know, he said, what does the Dharma have to teach me about serving others? That was the question. And Mel very uh, fiercely shot back, uh, what others serve yourself? Very good Zen answer, huh? And then the student said, uh, the student persisted and said, uh, well, how will I serve myself? And of course, Mel shot back, serve others,
1: <laughs> you
0: know? So this really speaks to this, what I was talking about, about the mutuality of service and the recognition that actually in serving others, we're always caring for ourselves. So for the last, oh, 25 years or so, me personally, um, I've been particularly involved in the service of people who are dying or those working with traumatic loss and also serving people who are caring for those individuals. Um, in the early days, um, I mostly worked with people living on the streets. I can remember changing diapers on park benches behind City Hall before they cleaned it up. You know? and um, Most of the people I worked with were living on the streets, indigent in some way. They were pretty tough, they didn't trust easily, they were living already on the margins of society and so mistrusted anybody who was in the system, so to speak. And um, if I was going to be of any use to them, I had to be completely honest, I had to be completely authentic, otherwise they would just sniff out my insincerity and my sentimentality. Now, for some of these individuals, their dying became an opportunity to blossom. It became a great gift for them. They were able to receive a certain kind of kindness that they had never known before in their lives. And it was beautiful to be with them, actually. But other times, people turned toward the wall in withdrawal, and they never came back again. And that also was a great teaching. Um I had to really learn not to chase after rewards, and that's what you were referring to earlier, because I realized that if even I had some idea about how it was supposed to turn out, or well, when I started grasping for some particular outcome, there I became dishonest. There I became um, outside, uh, separate from. Um, that, because chasing those kinds of rewards inevitably leads to some kind of objectification or some subtle kind of manipulation where we start trying to turn the person or the situation in order to get what we want. And that doesn't just happen, for example, in the, dying, in the situation of working with someone who's dying, that doesn't just happen while we're caring for them. It happens after they die. And the way in which we want to tell romantic stories about how good it turned out. Or the way in which we want to go home and tell our friends about how how much we were of great service today. Um, When I was able to act with this kind of honesty and authenticity, then the people I worked with, I became trustworthy for the people I worked with. Then they understood that we were both in the soup together. It wasn't me riding in on a white horse, you know, the good guy. We were both literally in the soup together. Um, When we serve like this, we become, what I've called for years, compassionate companions. That's really what we are in the act of service, compassionate companions, whether we're companioning an individual, an animal, the environment, or a whole country. The word compassion is often, you know, misused, actually. (laughs) I think of compassionate conservatism. You know, this is the way we've bastardized this particular word. But the word is generally understood to be suffering with others, suffering with others. And it's the little word, with, in the middle, which seems so important to me in this whole definition because the with seems to imply to me, anyway, a certain kind of intimacy, an intimacy with myself and with the other that I'm serving. And it's through that intimacy that actual true service occurs. And companion, the word companion is usually understood to be one who travels with another. Yes? One who travels with another. And for me, this implies a certain kind of belonging, actually. That we belong together. We're on this trip together. We're on this journey together. And we're just simply accompanying each other. Red Banderson, who used to be the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, said it very beautifully one evening. He said, "Um, um, we're simply walking through birth and death together, holding hands. That was a great way of describing the act of service, I thought. So one of the wonderful things about working with the people that I worked with for many years um, is that um, it caused me to really always question the ways in which I might separate myself from others. Somebody was talking earlier about their work with racism, for example. You know, I'd be on the street working with indigent folks. Um, uh, They were black. I was white. Uh, They shot heroin. I didn't. They lived on a park bench, and I paid a ridiculous amount of money for rent. Um, They were alone, and I raised four teenagers. On the surface, we could appear very, very different, and yet somehow in the um, intimacy of the work that we were doing together, we found a meeting place. We found a place, uh, often, of no separation we found um, not only our differences, but also the places where we met. Um, Now, for me, one of the um, practices that enables me to do that kind of service is to really check at the very beginning, before the action happens, and check my intention. Yeah. Pay attention to my intention. You know, before any act of body, actually before any thought, arises a moment of intention. Yeah, it emerges out of in in, in Buddhist practice we call Vedna or with um, the arriving with the arising of contact comes preferences. I like it, I don't like it, or neutral. Those are that always happens with contact from the eyes, contact with the ears, contact with the body. And then emerging out of that comes a whole series, the whole drama of our life unfolds. If if it's a pleasant experience, we want more of it. If it's an unpleasant experience, we want less of it. If it's a neutral experience, we tend to space out. This is the ground of intention actually, where intention emerges from. You know, in Zen practice, uh, when you go for an interview with a teacher, some of you have done either Zen practice or gone for interviews with Eugene, for example. In Zen practice, is called doka actually, and it's a particular form. Um, the, there's a great form to the way in which the interview happens. And, but very broadly speaking, the student is really instructed to gather himself or herself outside the door and to come into very immediate contact with where they are in this particular moment. Not so much about their question, you know. In Zen practice, the student has to come fully and completely into the moment so that when he or she enters the door, she doesn't know what's waiting for them on the other side. She doesn't know what questions the teacher may ask them or what will happen in the dynamic. And so they have to, in a way, empty themselves so that they can be responsive to the situation that they meet. So for me, going into a room of a dying patient was always like Dokasan. You know? um, but also, if you are gathering petitions for a particular issue, that's Dokasan. You know? If you are trying to raise awareness around the environment, that's Dokasan. You know? If you're walking into your children's bedroom in the morning to wake them before school, that's Dokasan. You know? It's, and so what's, what's asked for in doka Sang is this willingness to be totally available, present, responsive, um, having a sense of wonder, even, uh, about what might emerge in this particular moment. And in order to do that, we have to make sure that our bodies and minds enter the room at the same time. And this is where meditation practice is you know, uh, invaluable for us. Um, um, my friend Angel Zarian she says, in such moments we have to cultivate our curiosity so that it's greater than our criticality actually. Several people mentioned earlier about the need to relinquish judgment or a certain uh, uh, judging mind when we're uh, visiting with people or doing service with people I mentioned earlier, when I spoke about the qualities that are essential in service, releasing people from the tyranny of roles and um, the the person we have to most often start with is ourselves. Um, I'm um, continually flabbergasted, amazed by um, what I've often called helper's disease. And what I mean by that are the ways in which we try to distance ourselves from somebody else's suffering, through our pity, through our professional warmth, through our abstractions—you um, know, when we're trying to be somebody—I work with the dying. You know, me, Mister Hospice. You know, um, we're we're building an enormous wall between ourselves and the other person. Because when we start to really identify too much with that role, instead of just seeing it as a function, uh, we imprison ourselves in that role and oftentimes we will imprison those we serve. So we have to be really careful about our mm, grasping, I'll say, to our identity in the act of service. Um, And watch how we might use that To defend or protect ourselves from the suffering of others. Um, We'll spend a whole evening just looking at that very question the ways in which we might defend ourselves from the suffering of others. But there's a story I've told for years about, in fact, one of the very first patients we ever served at Zen Hospice. Um, She used to live on the street, and I kind of snuck her into Zen Center one night, actually and uh, slipped her upstairs without anybody at Zen Center knowing about it. And then they woke up in the morning. I said, guess what? We're going to take care of this woman who's dying. They weren't too happy about the idea at Zen Center. And we didn't have any volunteers in those days. We had, I think, 12 volunteers. And so I would go down to the dining room, and I would uh, find Zen students in the dining room. I'd say, you want to learn how to take care of people who are dying? And they'd say, yeah. i said, okay, come on. I'd bring them upstairs and show them how to do it. Eugene was one of those, by the way. Eugene, he'll tell you the story sometime. Ask him how he came to be a volunteer at Sun Hospice. He's got a great story about it. Anyway, one day, um, this, well, we had this one patient who was coming close to the end of her life, and she was a little depressed. That seemed reasonable she was coming to the end of her life. So we had a fill-in hospice nurse who came to see her. And the nurse went in to visit and came out of the room and said, um, I think we should start some Eleville. Eleville was the this was before the days of antidepressants, actually. Elabil was a kind of mood-altering drug that would help uh, boost people's moods when it was given in small doses. And so I said, well, that's really interesting. I said, why do you think she needs Elabil? And she said, well, she's clearly so uncomfortable and it's so hard to watch her be so uncomfortable. And I said, oh, well, maybe you should take the Elabil.
1: Hmm. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> So the attachment to the role of helper is pretty old in most of us. No matter what form our service takes, if we're not really careful, it will imprison us. Now, I want to just outline one or two more ideas and I'll stop. Um, These are kind of fundamental, I'll say, to our discussion, so I think it's useful to frame them at the beginning. Um, For years, I've shared with people Um, a beautiful description that my friend Rachel Naomi Remen um, often describes, a way she often describes service, which for me is one of the most eloquent um, descriptions I've seen in years, over the years, rather. And she says, uh, basically, service is not the same as helping. Service is not the same as helping. Um, Helping is based on inequality. When I help, I often am aware of my strength and I help from the position of strength. And so oftentimes in that particular mode, I see the other person as weak or less than. Somebody was mentioning this earlier. And so helping becomes a relationship of inequality. And through my helping, I may inadvertently cause the other to feel diminished in some way. When I serve, I don't just serve from my strength. I don't just serve from my expertise. When I serve, I serve from my whole being. And so my whole being is is involved in the action of service. That means that every part of me can serve. That means that my wounds serve. My fear serves. My anger serves. They all serve as meeting places between myself and the other person. So, helping incurs debt. You yeah? When I help you move your apartment, your stuff to a new apartment, then you owe me one. huh? But the experience of service, the aftertaste, I'll say, of the experience of service is one of gratitude, actually. It feels entirely different. Serving, Rachel says, is also quite different than what we normally think of as fixing. I, I say we should fix broken pipes, but not people. When we set about fixing, we see the other person as broken, as intrinsically broken. But when we serve, we see them as intrinsically whole. Yeah, Even as Mother Teresa used to say, Jesus in his distressing disguise. Yeah. So, when I see the other person as broken and I start fixing, I'll realize, if, if I look carefully, I'll realize that fixing is a kind of judgment actually. It emerges out of a kind of judgment. And so actually what I'm giving the other person is not assistance, not service, but judgment. The other person is intrinsically whole. That's really hard to remember when we are dealing in difficult situations. I mean, it's just so hard. I had a my Aunt Mimi, she was a dear, and she was in her late 80s. She had severe uh, Alzheimer's. And when I would go to see her, she always thought I was somebody else. She never thought it was me. But I still loved going to see her. And she was pretty uninhibited. Because of her Alzheimer's. She used to continuously throw her dress over her head, you know. And so I was sitting there with her one day. We'd always have these kind of crazy conversations. And one day I just sat there, I said, Mimi, all these years, you know, 86 years old, you never had a beau, you know? You never had a man in your life? And I was kind of curious. She was what we would have called in those days an old maid. Not a very flattering title, I would say. That's how she used to refer to herself. And so I said, Mimi, never had a boat? And the most amazing thing happened. She sat up in her chair, folded her arms like this, and said, Some questions are too personal to ask.
1: <laughs> and
0: then she went back to throwing her dress over her head.
1: <laughs>
0: There's always a whole human being there. Always. And the work of service is always soul to soul work. It's always. We're always serving the wholeness in the other person. And, it's, and in that exchange, we're also served. That dimension of us is also served. And the server, I want to say, recognizes that he or she is in the service of something much bigger, even than you or me. you know, in Buddhist cosmology, whether you believe it all or not, we have this idea that we have been born many, many times. And um, even if you only accept it as a metaphor, in that cosmology, being born many, many times, we've all been born as each other's mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. Yeah. And so um, um, we learn to treat each other as our most beloved. And that's not always easy to do when you're working in certain realms of service, as I have, where people start throwing bedpans at you. In order to really serve from that place, we have to look past the personality. It doesn't mean that we don't include the personality, but we don't stop just at the door of the personality. We try and serve the whole human being. So when we inquire, as we're doing here this evening, into the heart of service, we'll see a very simple pattern, common to all those um, habits that hinder our work, is a sense of separateness. In common to all those patterns that seem to help our work or assist our work um, seems to be the experience of unity in some way. So when the heart is undivided, then everything we encounter becomes our practice, becomes a practice of service. And so service becomes this kind of sacred exchange like breathing in and breathing out. We receive physical and spiritual gifts from the world. That's like breathing in. Uh, Because each of us are born with some kind of happiness, with connection to our own deep nature. And then breathing out is just the expression of that. It's just our own deep nature expressing itself, knowing itself through the expression of service. This sounds pretty high-faluting, you know, and kind of spiritual. Uh, a friend of mine, um, Kate Bateson, said, I just think service is simple human kindness. I love that. I thought that was a really good way of expressing it. Service is just a natural expression of our simple human kindness. So I wanted to just name a few of these things in our first evening so that we would have a bit of a, you know, foundation for our um, discussions uh, together. So first let me just ask you if there's any comments or questions you have about anything I've said, disagreements or clarifications that you might want, or maybe something you want to share about your experience that um, relates to something that I've just been speaking about. So let's take a few minutes for that, and then I, I have an exercise I'd like us to try. So, any questions or comments? Yeah. Uh, Tagore. Tagore. Rabindranath Tagore. T-A-G-O-R-E. What else? So, did any of this make sense to you? Does it seem to speak to the truth of your experience? And if it didn't, I'd like to know where did it resonate and where did it not resonate? That's what I'd like to know.
1: I have a mixed reaction to the issue that helping involves asymmetry, and I think of two examples. Mm-hmm. Somebody can't figure out how to use their computer, so I help them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, another is somebody can't push their car up the hill, and neither could I, but mm-hmm. together we can. We could so do it. I help them, and so together we accomplish something different. There's right. an asymmetry in one and not in the other, mm-hmm. Yeah, we use the Yeah.
0: So, I mean, I think, and again, I'm drawing on Rachel's thinking on this, but um, I think she's trying to make a distinction because uh, really helping to separate out, in a way, what's the action and what's the intention behind the action. So we can help somebody with our computer, for example, in your scenario that you described, and as you suggest, we could just share our expertise. And that's valuable to them. If we had this notion, oh, you stupid fool, he can't figure out Microsoft Word, well, this isn't so helpful to him or her um, if we're trying to assist them in that moment, yeah. So I think we're pointing here to the intention that lies behind the action, and also what we bring to the action. So we're not, oftentimes in helping, we have a limited scope to our action, and in service, we're bringing a much broader dimension of who we are to the action. Oh, that's a good question did you hear what she said she said in empathy and compassion is compassion just a greater degree of empathy it's a deeper dimension not of empathy but of our being it's one of the subjects I really want to talk about when we talk about suffering um, empathy is oftentimes mm, we could say I often say we build an empathetic bridge to the other person's experience from our experience so we have some mm, Something in our history, for example, or a woundedness in us that resonates, if you will, with the, the woundedness in the other person and so we can empathetically respond to them. We feel a certain... At one level we have sympathy, and then we have empathy, and then we have compassion. So um, uh, this is an extraordinarily valuable element, empathy. I don't want to make us... I don't want to give the impression that it's not essentially important. Um, Rogers, Carl Rogers, once spoke about empathy as... Um, it was beautiful actually he said empathy is the willingness to enter the private perceptual world of the other and move about it delicately it's a very beautiful expression he said it's a willingness to look at what frightens the other most without being lost in our fear and he said we do this by temporarily leaving our world and entering their world confident that we can return to our world whenever we need to yeah? beautiful expression now inherent in that though in, even in the way Rogers described it which is the most inclusive way I've ever heard empathy described there's still I and other there's still you're the hurt one I'm the less hurt one and somehow and there's, and there's a value in that but there's still I and other in compassion true compassion this I and other dissolves um, we'll, we'll get into this more, but I'll just say a word or two about this now. Compassion, as I understand it, and I've, it's as I've experienced it in my life, um, we often think about compassion as kind of emotional support or good counsel or um, these kinds of ideas. And at its deepest sense, what compassion does it's a, it's a deep dimension of our own deep our own nature that in a way snuggles up really close to suffering compassion wants to be with suffering and while it sometimes just by its presence just by its presence rather relieves suffering that isn't its primary task and it's interesting because in buddhism we often speak about compassion or the bodhisattva vow as relieving suffering and what people understand sometimes is relieving